Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another great session. We are here with Katrin Matiska. Katrin is a founder of TPC the performance company, such a good name, a leading training and consulting organization that worked with Fortune 100 companies around the world. And it has offices in Sydney, Los Angeles, New York, London, and Singapore, all, all great cities, Katrin, I see. You found the reason to visit them more often. Katrin was also a member of the year's Congressional Business Advisory Council. So uh, such a pleasure to have you with us, Katrin, today. Thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Catherine, so for our listeners and viewers who are not familiar with you, maybe you could start by giving us a background story on how you ended up running an international consulting and coaching company. So right now, I, I do do that. I run that international consulting firm and I have clients all around the world, but it didn't start like that. It started with me being in between jobs 28 years ago, and I thought, I'll do some contracting work. And then from there, I thought, hang on a second, this is a bit of a secret. I didn't really realise that this whole world existed because I'd been in a full-time job. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just do this for a little while and then I'll get a real job. Well, 28 years later, I never did get that real job. So in my early career, I started off in the computer industry at the beginning of the PC industry when everyone was learning Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and I was their trainer. And then from there, I started to do train the trainer sessions when they were in vogue. And then from there, I grew my business and started speaking in America and started branching out. And really my clients have been the ones that have taken the organization around the world, not me. I've never said, well, now we're going to do business in a particular country. It's been my clients that have had a head office here or a home office there and they've, or branch offices, and they've taken us into that area. And then geographically we've spread from there. So I know there's a lot behind this story. It was a challenging road and you did incredibly well. And um, I'm looking forward to unpack it a little bit for our listeners and viewers. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on the first few steps of entrepreneurship and what were those defining moments where you felt the company started growing. I found the company growing because I put more effort in and I realised that the more effort I put in, the more I got out. I got out um, certainly more happiness about working with clients and the joy of seeing people develop and learn because I've always been in learning and development and that was great. But I also saw cash coming in as well. And so I thought, well, the more hours I work, because at that time I was trading time for hours. So if I did nothing for the day, I didn't get paid. So, and, and now that's not the case. But in when I first started, 
I was trading time for money. So therefore, the more effort I put in was, was completely a mirror image of my bank account. So I thought, I'll just keep putting more effort in, more effort in. Well, eventually, you just become exhausted and then you can't go any further. And I think the defining moment for me was the moment when I said, hang on a second, I'm now working at capacity and I was literally training five days a week. And then if there was a Saturday training course, I would take that as well. So I was working and then on my outside of my training time, I was then doing my invoicing, my proposals, my everything else. So I was working some serious hours and I always have. And that really hasn't changed throughout my entire career. So, but it was that realisation that the crossroads be, between is this just me or do I now actually create a company do I create something that's bigger than me? And I remember that first hire very well. And that person stayed with me for about oh, eight years, which was great. That was a very lucky hire. And then I started to grow from there. And then all of a sudden, what started as a just-in-between job, just some contracting work, just me, all of a sudden, I had infrastructure, offices, da, 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 and it was like, whoa, hang on a second. Is this really what I want? So there becomes lots of moments on the journey, you know, tremendous highs, Chris. You know, the people that I have met in the world, amazing. I could have never, ever dreamt that I would meet the people and be involved with the things that I've been involved with, working with the companies that I've worked with who are making a difference to humanity every day. And I'm in there. I could have never dreamt with that uh, and all of that 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 has brought. And by the on the flip side of that, I've also had tremendous lows, tremendous um, letdowns, all sorts of issues along the way. So it has been a roller coaster. And any entrepreneur who tells you that it's all sweet and beautiful is absolutely lying. I am yet to meet one that can really look me in the face and say, you know what, I've had the best ride. It's all been smooth. I've been tremendously successful. Like if, if anyone listening or watching this knows one, can you introduce me to them? Because I want to know how they did it. Because for me, it's been 28 years of roller coaster. And mind you, the roller coaster of my business has been amazing. But still, there's two sides to the story. Very true. And I think it is the same for everyone who is self-made. I think it's maybe a little bit different when you inherit family business. <laughs> But then when, when you are building from ground up and you're starting from really not, not being in a position to pay your rent and then getting all the way to, to providing job opportunities to people around the world, that is usually, it's an exciting journey, but it's, it has a lot of tough moments mm -hmm. along the mm -hmm. way. Catherine, and you mentioned trading time for money and then coming to a point when you realized that's not how you want to continue and then sudden changes were made. Could you speak more about that? Because I think a lot of people who are starting their own companies, so for example, many of the listeners, they are starting their own consulting firm. I think it would be incredibly valuable for them to get your advice on 
this transition? The transition for me was quite a poignant moment and I was listening to a podcast and the woman on the podcast used that term, trading time for money. And she said, if you do that, you will only ever get to a certain level. And I remember hearing that thinking, whoa, that's me. And even though I had quite a big team at that point, I think I had maybe 20 people working with me at that point, essentially I was still trading time for money, either my time or their time. And it was at that point I thought, wow, is there another way here? Because I'd always thought that consulting and the umbrella term of consulting, which for me is speaking or training programs, even instructional design where we're taking people's content and turning it into training, that was essentially, when you boil it down, all trading time for money. And I thought, hang on a second, what can I do differently here? So the first thing was to really look at where the time was being spent and was that really valuable? And now I have this, this mindset of is everyone on my team, including me, doing high-value work? And some days I think, no, no, no one's doing high-value work today because high-value work is certainly meeting client needs and doing projects, but it's also investing in things that will set us up for the future and the future growth. And there's a lot of low-value work that's just not doing either of those things. And then the, the second thing was to look at how we could take our mainstay training programs that we were running and really productize them and say, how can we create a product? Now, I've been very fortunate in that I have witnessed the computer industry and software and platforms and apps from the beginning. Like I was there in the beginning, the very first version of Microsoft Office or even before it was Office when it was probably no one on this podcast listening can remember when they were actually separate packages and you had to go and buy them. That's how old I am, right? So I've been there for what feels like a century. It's not quite that long, but I feel like I've been there from the beginning and I've seen all of these come forward. And because I've had that absolute love for the computer industry where I started my career, I've always been the nerd. I've always been the one on the cutting edge. Like now we're looking at a metaverse for our training platforms and I'm just like anything that's high tech, new tech, I'm in there. And so that's been great advantage because when it came to that decision around trading time for money and saying, well, okay, how can we create this term called passive income, which is not quite a passive because you don't just sit back on the lounge and, you know, everything's coming in. But to create a suite of products that people can access 24-7, to be putting digital learning into place, I had that computer background. So none of that was scary to me because that was exciting. Wow, we can take this, uh, this training program and we can repackage it into something that people can just buy with, or, with us or without us. And there's really not a coach or a consultant that I've met that doesn't have an element of that already in their arsenal. 
And now that even if it's not produced, there is no easier time to produce that than now. 10 years ago, mm, not so easy. Now, oh, super simple, like really, really easy to do that. And that is, I think now, if coaches, consultants, any sort of um, trading time for money person is listening to this, it's time to kind of sit back, have a coffee and go, what have I got? What have I got on my computer right now that I could turn into something that isn't trading time for money? It might even be something that you give to a client before you start your consulting with them. It might be something after you do your consulting. But I would bet that there's something right now on everyone's computer that they could turn into something like that. Catherine? Let's unpack it a little bit. So first thing you mentioned is that you identified some things that were not valuable use of time for you and your team. Do you recall any activities that you cut out, outsourced from what your team was had to do every day? Mm, well, one of the things I did in 2006, I was on a flight and at that stage, just to get the, the sort of movie of where my life was, between 2000 and 2010, I did America, Australia every two weeks. So I was two weeks in America, two weeks in Australia. And I did that for 10 years. And you know that there's something wrong when Qantas send you gift baskets for Christmas. Okay, so, you know, I just knew there was something wrong because I'm going, hang on, why is Qantas sending me a gift basket? It's because I was doing that flight and I was one of their top frequent flyers. So I had you know, something like 110 crossings of the Pacific Ocean. And so it was all crazy. So I had a lot of time to think and it was my time. It was great. There was there was just this beautiful time. And in 2006, I was on a flight. And I decided that I would write a list of everything I liked in my job and everything I didn't like. And I thought, I'm the CEO of this company. I can do whatever I want, okay? I can have the job however I want the job to be. It's my company. So one of the things I wrote down on the, uh, I had a like and a hate list. That's how extreme this list was, right? So on my hate side of my piece of paper, I had performance reviews. I really dislike doing performance reviews. I, I actually despise doing performance reviews. And at that stage, we were doing them every six months, every 12 months. And I know that that's part of corporate life. I get that. But personally, I can't stand doing them. I find them a grind. I had to do all the paperwork for each person. It was just a pain. So I thought, okay, what would a company look like? And I thought that was pretty low value work because in my mind, if people don't know how they're performing project by project by project every day of the week, why do we need to wait for 12 months to give them a performance review? So anyway, I thought personally that's pretty low value work. So I thought what would it look like in my world if I just didn't do them? Okay, well, if I didn't do them, that means that we'd have to restructure how we give that feedback. So taking... Uh, what I considered in my perception, and there's probably HR directors listening to this who are thinking, oh, my goodness, Catherine Matiski, you're insane. That's okay. That's my perception and my opinion. And so 
So I took what I considered to be a low-value activity that took me a whole lot of time, paperwork, you know, creating conversations, all of that stuff, all the follow-up, and I just deleted it. But then to do that, I had to restructure things around that. So now performance, and since 2006 to now, performance is based on a project. Did you deliver the project on time? Yes or no. Was it to the client's expectations? Yes or no. What happened in the project? It's, it's simple. And that just one decision then created a whole new framework around employees, around contractors, and gave us this spirit of everyone knows where they stand every day of the week. We're not waiting for 12 months. So when I pick a what I consider a low-value activity, and it might be a technical activity like doing something with a database or it might be a marketing activity like we've just done a whole thing on Facebook, completely low value, waste of money, should have just given the money to charity, right? I would have got a lot more joy with that. But then let's not keep doing that. Let's keep not on the track of the hope and prayer strategy. Forget that. There's no such strategy as hope and prayer. We test, we learn, we are big enough and grown up enough to say, huh, ran that series of Facebook ads, that did nothing. Let's not try that again. And then I've got somebody in my team going, oh, but if we tweak it this way, tweak it that way, we could win this time. I was like, ah, how much money do you want to spend on this angle that isn't working? Let's just stop that. It's low value work. And then by doing that, everybody kind of gets their grown up boots on and their big pants on and says, okay, it didn't work. That's okay. Let's do something different. Sometime in the future, we might go back and do Facebook advertising because someone's got a new idea, a new angle. Something's changed in Facebook. Something's changed with our customer personas. Let's do it then. But for right now, in that particular project, low value work, call it, just say, this is a waste of time. No one has to get emotional about it. Nobody who's the, you know, the person on my team who's putting the Facebook ads in is not crying in the corner saying, oh my God, you know, my life's over. I'm going to get a bad performance review. Forget it. Move on. And so that's, I don't know if that's my Australian attitude at play or whether it's just the get over it attitude or the just do it attitude. I don't really care if there's a label on it. I just think calling out work and time that's low value is critical because you never get that time again. You'll get the budget again, but you'll never get the time again. Once the day has passed, the day has gone. Do something different the next day. That's kind of my philosophy around that. Incredibly helpful. Thank you, Katrin. And then you also mentioned that at the point when you realized that you don't want to trade time for money, you also started converting some of your programs that you did live into digital training programs. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could share with us what surprised you about this introduction of this uh, 
so-called passive income, which is not actually passive. Uh, and um, kind of any realizations or how moments you could share with our listeners and viewers who are also now at the point where they want to create some passive income? The, the most surprising thing for me was the realization of where my strengths were and the realization of where my strengths weren't. And to create those products took a great deal of detail. It was, we had to be very efficient because the opportunity to dot every I and cross every T with such precision meant a whole lot of time. We had to be very balanced with the time, but we had to be very detailed. And that is not in my genius zone, to be detailed. My When I get really stressed, I get super detailed, but that's not a good space for me to be in. Like I am, when I'm really stressed, give me the Excel spreadsheet and I will dive into it and analyse it and that's where I go, but when I'm stressed. Where I operate best and my is in this space of visioning, um, in the space of dreaming up new ideas, in creating that's where I operate best. So to answer your question, to create the products was actually the polar opposite of where I work best. So one of my team led that charge because she, her genius zone is in that level of detail. And honestly, it would have blown my mind if I'd had to do that myself. Could I have done it? Absolutely, because I know that in that, you know, in that pressure cooker zone, I go into that detail space. But to create those products is such minute detail around exactly how everything looks on the screen, how everything has to come together, the precision of we were creating digital learning products, so the precision of every lesson. It's very different to me in my in my genius zone so it, so to do it took a lot longer than I thought and so of course I was impatient like what how is this so incredibly difficult why is this taking so long but seeing the other end of it and seeing the journey I was just like wow I get it I get why it has to be that precise because when you're packaging up the product, like anybody in product development, once that product is packaged, you don't want to go back and change it, you know, and you don't want to be correcting it. So, so it's the time and the effort and just to keep hold of the end goal is quite challenging at times because of the road that you've got to go on. Now, remember that we were doing this a few years back to create these kinds of products where, you know, the platforms weren't as sophisticated as they are now. So now there's lots of platforms that can help do it quite quickly. But people, I think, believe the sales hype that it is really quicker than what it is. Catherine, and what did it do for your business once you introduced your first digital product? What happened? Well, even if we didn't sell any of the digital products, which was the case in the beginning, because we just thought build it and they will come. Well, 
you know, I've gotten rid of that out of my life. Build it and they don't come because they don't know about it, right? But even the fact that we had it meant that we could strengthen what we were doing with clients. Before a training program, we could then do pre-course work and we could give people a digital module to do before, which then took duration out of the training program, so time out of the training program, and it also gave people who were new into the subject area time to absorb, retain, feel more confident before they even got to training. So what it did for the business was to say, instead of doing training programs that were event-based, come in, get trained, go out, we were lengthening the learning pathway for people with digital before and then digital after. We then started to break up our training programs because in 2011, we went to all virtual. So this is like a long time before the pandemic where people said, I've got to do virtual training. We started doing it in 2011. And the last time I stood in front of a training room and delivered a training program was 2013. So I have not stood in front of a training room for since all that time. So we were really pioneering back then. So what we did was our programs, we then made into certification programs that we still run. And they're over a three-month period where we come together in a virtual environment every two weeks. But in between is all those digital modules where people are doing a real the the real blended learning. They do some digital, then they come back, they do some project work, they have some one-on-one coaching, and then they come into their group session. So we've been running that. And now if we hadn't have converted those early products into digital learning modules, we would have never had the skills in the organisation to be able to then take what is now 10 certification programs that we run globally for learning and development professionals. So that decision, that pivotal moment to say the trading time for money, what else can I do, has now, when I look down the journey of the organisation, is now an entire division of the organisation that runs these certification programs off the back of that one little decision. Katrin, and how did you realize this opportunity for certification program? Is it something that clients asked for or did you identify? Initially, yeah, initially, because there was no um, professional certification for trainers, so professional trainers working in a corporation, uh, strategic performance consultants, instructional designers, there was no professional certification. And there was courses, there was like train the trainer courses, but there was nothing that was um, anything of weight. So when I developed the ID9 intelligent design methodology, then clients came to me and said, will you certify, will you run a training program for our learning and development team? And so from there, it just grew from there where more and more people knew about it. And if you're deep into learning and development, you know that ID9 exists. 
And so then it became sort of like the premium cream of the crop certification. So now there's actually lots of certificate courses around and with industry bodies and things like that. But still ID9 is for really serious players, large organisations, people with their own um, consulting practice where they're doing speaking and training, they'll do it. So it, it's it's more than the piece of paper, the certification. It gives people the tools to do all of that. So, so yes, originally clients came to us and said, would you put this together for us? And then it just became something that we offered more generally. Katrin, and when you offered certification, did you found it to be another defining moment for your business? Yes, oh, absolutely. Because it became a thing. And rather than just a program, it was a thing. And what I mean by a thing, it was something that people could aspire to do. You know, I've never made any bones about it that our programs are expensive. So is a Ferrari. And they don't ever turn around and go, oh, you want a Ferrari? Well, okay, you can have that for $30,000. No, the Ferrari price is the Ferrari price. The Lamborghini price is the Lamborghini price. The Mercedes-Benz price, they make no bones about it because what, what it gave us was the wrapping and the substance of quality. And it was really hard moving. Like from my perspective, I'm going, okay, we're moving from doing a program for a corporation and, and we'll charge X for it to now we're calling this a certification. Well, what does that mean? What's the difference? Huge difference, right? What have been got to be all the tools? All the tools now have to look consistent, professional. Everything has to look great. As far as the instruction goes, it has to be precise. We're now doing blended, which means we're doing digital modules. They all have to work. People have to use a platform. They need to be able to then come to live sessions. How does that work? You know, so talk about we sort of moved from the, the Toyota to the Mercedes-Benz, the accessible to the exclusive. And then now we've got to move from the Mercedes-Benz to the Lamborghini, where people who do that certification turn around to me and say, this has changed my entire life. And I go, wow, some people don't hear that ever in their life. I hear that all the time because of the tools and the uh, processes and the systems that I've created. And that is really a, a very high-end product. But what comes out of that is the value. So it has been it, it has been pivotal and that was a very good decision to go down on that track because people have have that value customers have that value of that product katrin and you mentioned you have 10 certifications how did it come about did you started with one and then you saw that it's really working well and then you introduced more Yes. So we started with, with ID9 that was originally created by me in 2001. I published my first book on it then. And so that entire system and process was around instructional design. How do you put together 
a training program based on some sort of subject matter expertise content. So how do you turn that content into training? And people go, well, how hard can that be? Well, it's really hard because you're trying to change human behaviour on the other end of that training course. So a client said to me way back in, in the late 90s, how is it, Catherine, that you can do this for us so quickly on their content? And I said, I don't know. I just do it. I can create a training program that works on content that I know nothing about. And I had no clue how I could do that. I, I really did not know. And I thought, well, I better work it out. And I worked out what I was doing. I worked out that the process that what I was doing was exactly the same every time. And I thought, hang on, I'm actually doing a process quite unconsciously. So I was unconsciously competent. So I thought, okay, I'll start writing down the process. That was the beginning of ID9. And that was how to take content from the and turn it into a training course from the beginning of the training course to the end. That And that became the very first certification course, just that piece of the process. Well, then I realised that there's a piece before that called strategic performance consulting. How do you even know what to put in the training course unless you've actually done that piece, which is determining who the, who the participants are, what are their needs, what's the gap we're trying to fill, and then getting a framework of the actual program. And I thought, well, how do I do that? So then I sat down and worked that out. That became the second training, the second uh, piece of the, of the certification puzzle. And that's the strategic performance consulting piece. Then the other piece was once the training program was written, someone has to deliver it. How do you deliver something that's been written really in expert ways so that you're actually getting that behaviour change of the participants? That was number three. Number four was then what do you do after this at the end when they've come back to work? How do you then create a retention application of learning? That was number four. And that's how it grew. And so it was then the process as I was doing each course then became more solid. And then from those four four stages of the process, I then added depth. Into the first one, I added layers, and now that's silver, gold, and platinum, where now people who are specialists in that area go down that learning journey to really make the very best product that they can make when it comes to learning. So now the programs have new depth. There's an overarching leader program. So how do I lead a, a learning and development team? There's an admin program. How do I support? So all the questions that people are saying, well, I'm a chief learning officer. How do I lead this team? How do I restructure this team? There's now a certification for that. So that's how it grew, really from the gaps and the needs of the customer base. And that's where I've always operated in. Where are they unconsciously incompetent? They don't know what they don't know. And how can we move them from that stage to the conscious incompetence, which is really painful, of now I know what I don't know. Oh, 
Now I've got a gap. I need to fill the gap. Bang, where we've got the product to fill that gap. Or if we don't, we'll change one, build one, do whatever to help the client fill that gap. So that's where I've always operated, from a completely client needs basis. Because every time I haven't and I've done a build it and they will come, they don't. And I go, oh, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? Low value work, you know. We built something on the hope and prayer strategy that we thought customers would need it, but they really don't. And then that's just been a waste of time. So that's where the premise has always been driven from a client need basis. Catherine, before we started recording this session, you and I spoke about consulting and how in consulting communication with clients is just of such an incredible importance. And I wanted to spend some time with you to get your advice for our listeners on what do you feel helped you become successful and grow your company when it comes to communication and building relationship with clients? I've met so many people over my years of business. And I love asking people the question, what do you do? And the answers are often so fluffy, so roundabout, so incredibly detailed that there are actually no more questions to follow with because I'm really bored, you know. And I think to myself, there are so many smart people in the world that are brilliant at what they do. And some of them are consultants, some of them are coaches, some of them have their own practice, and yet they cannot communicate very well. And then on the flip side, we've all met people who have that entrepreneurial spirit that could basically sell ice to the Eskimos. And they have this influential charisma about them. And some of them are not the smartest people. And some of them are not the brightest sparks. And some of them are not the experts. And yet, they are so influential. They're so charismatic. They're so connected to other people. Those people fascinate me. Why is it that those people are like magnets? And it comes down to one thing, communication. They have the art of communication sewn up, stitched up, they've got it. And yet there's all of these other brilliant people that can't even tell me, <laughs> what do you do? And so there really is the basics of people going into business for themselves and saying, and I know that's a big shift now, saying, I want to be able to do this and I want to have my own business and da-da-da-da-da, and yet they cannot really get their point across of what their business is and what's the problem that they're solving. And so I've done a whole lot of work in that area to say, how, how does this actually work? How does those people who are not the smartest people in the world and yet are incredibly charismatic, 
incredibly connected, incredibly influential. How do they do it? What are they doing? And then what are the lessons for the rest of the people? Now, of course, some people who are highly charismatic are brilliant. Let's not just, there is a division of those people who are, like that. there is that amazing magnetism of brilliance and charismatic and connected and influential, like that's the sweet spot. And what about the rest? So that's where I've been spending a whole lot of my time in saying you can be the smartest expert in the world in your niche. And I work in a niche, within a niche, within a niche. Like my work up until um, middle of last year, my work was typically with 5,000 human beings on the planet. That's how narrow my niche is. That's it. It wasn't, you know, billions of people. It was about 5,000 people. That's it. And I grew my business on those 5,000 people. So I knew them intimately. And so I was an expert and am an expert in that niche within the niche within the niche. And so it all comes down to communication. And now as I broaden out the business into a whole new area, I've taken all of that learning and said, okay, what is the formula now for those for that communication? Because if you are a consultant, a coach, a, a business owner, and do not have the sharpest skills in the box on communication, it's a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity to share your expertise to the world to make a difference. And the missed opportunity comes back to one thing, communication. Katrin, and uh, could you share with us some of those elements of the formula that you uncovered based on your research and understanding people who were very good at it? Mm. So remember my whole life has been in learning and the science of learning and then you kind of add that nerd piece of the computer industry that I grew up in and I love researching how people learn and learning science. I find it fascinating. And so when we get underneath terms like agility and underneath terms like communication, when we get right down into how does that actually function, what happens is we all learn in a different way. We all have different preferences about the way we show up to the world of how we take in information and how we process that information. Now, what's that got to do with communication? It has 100% to do with communication because the way we learn as humans and the way we take in and process information is a direct mirror of the communication language that we use. So within three sentences of talking to somebody, I can tell them and myself this is their learning preference because of the words that they use, the way they structure their language, and how they communicate. Now, okay, I've done that for 30 years. Yep, that's that's my genius zone because I can do that. So how do we then take that lesson and say, all right, 
how do we then learn about that? If we learn how we learn, and sometimes we have to relearn how we learn, the first realisation is that everyone around us learns differently. So therefore, following on with the logic, if everyone's learning differently, that means everyone's communicating differently. Well, that makes sense because now we see people as being sometimes difficult. Well, they're not difficult. They're just different to you. So with that piece of information, then comes the piece of information around that impacts how we connect with each other. So if I'm a consultant and I'm going to see a new client, the first thing I want to do is connect with that client, my potential client, communicate to them how what I can do for them and then influence them to say, come on board with me and I'll help you. Now, if that person learns in a similar way to you, they'll communicate in a similar way to you. They'll be more likely to be influenced by you because you're kind of the same. But what about people who are really different to you? So what happens is people go, oh, no, I didn't get that job. No, they're really difficult clients. No, I, I, I didn't get that. Or we put our best foot forward, but they just didn't understand us. Or they're not ready for us. Or they've told us they're not ready, which is a lovely, polite way of saying no. So when we kind of get to the realisation that everybody is unique in their learning, then that follows through to how do people connect, how do people communicate, and then how do people influence. So I've known this forever, right? I've just known this because that's what I've done. I've built my business on it. It's how I have client relationships. I just get it. But I've studied that for 30 years. So what I did last year was I said, okay, how about I share that with the world? I've been sharing that in this niche within a niche within a niche of the learning and development of big Fortune 100 companies. How about I take that to the world? So that's what I've done is to create, firstly, I wrote a book on it, then to create a profile to say, if you do this profile, you'll then understand yourself and then you'll realise that other people are different around you. And then I thought, well, that's not going to help people because that's just like every other online profile that says, oh, that's interesting. So I thought, okay, what do people really need? They need tools and communication tools to help them do their next email, to do their next presentation, to do their next um, engagement with a, with a customer, to, to go out there and consult. So I've created a whole set of tools to make that happen. And I've put that out there and people are going, oh, my goodness. Where's this been? Well, it's it's just been either in my head or it's been sitting in big Fortune 100 companies. They're not going to tell anybody that that's their edge. So now it's out there. So that's what I've done. Catherine, and um, so when you meet a client and you see that they're, for example, visual or auditory, then you change the way you communicate with them. So, for example, someone who likes to listen, you will speak to them versus sending them an email. And someone who is visual, you will use a lot of graphs and colors. Is the, would you say this is the kind of the core of your it's, approach? Yeah, it's one component of it. 
um, the whole, I call this genius quotient, the GQ. So you've got IQ, EQ, and now GQ. That's certainly one component of it. The entire GQ is about 70 components that come together. And the one that you mentioned is one of them, and that's the sensory intake of information. So how do you actually take in information? Where I focus on as well is how do people process that information? So taking it in is one thing, but processing it is another. To give you an example, let's say that you're, let's say you're a consultant and let's say you're a bit like me. So you're really good at visioning, really good at dreaming up new ideas, really good at um, coming up with new creative solutions. Let's say that you're a bit like me. And then you meet, so my so in my work, I've created 12 archetypes. So my archetype, when I did my profile, is called the futurist. So let's say you've got a client who's probably polar opposites to you. They're detailed. They're practical. They're really efficient. They, they want the facts. So that archetype would be what I refer to as the horologist. So a horologist is a clockmaker. So that's got nothing to do with clocks, but it's that precision, that idea of that precision. So as a futurist, how do I now work with the horologist? Well, if I come in with my futurist ideas and, you know, I go, okay, let's just whiteboard all of this, let's do this, let's get a mirror board out, let's just brainstorm this out. The horologist is sitting there going, okay, can you just give me a list of things that we have to do? Can you give me all the facts? I need pricing. I need the roadmap. I need all the detail. And I need specifications on everything that we'll be doing. That is not in my land at all, okay? So what I need to do is firstly recognise that the person that I'm talking to is different to me and that every question that they ask around lists, details, specifics and whatever, I should never dismiss that because they're giving me clues to who they are as far as their genius quotient goes, what their archetype is. If I can tap into that, which I can do because it's what I do, then I will start changing my language to their language. I will start using words like blueprint, I, which is not in my natural language. I will use words like uh, label and layout and list and match. I will use that kind of language because I know that all that language is hooking in that horologist. So it's about creating what I refer to as a translation bridge. How do I translate from my language to the language of the person that I'm working with, whether it's a team member, whether it's a customer, whether it's my husband, whether it's my family, whether it's my friends. And it's a bit like speaking a native language. So if I was born in Spain, I grow up speaking Spanish. I know nothing different. And someone else is born in Germany and they know nothing different than German. And so when we converse, if I'm speaking Spanish and they're speaking German, we're not really understanding very much at all. And we might understand 
you know, the odd word here and there and go, oh, I got that. Oh, but it's really difficult. But imagine if I was Spanish and someone was speaking German in front of me and I go, oh, that's German. I can now speak German. Or someone speaks Italian. Oh, that's Italian. Or Russian or Portuguese. I go, I notice that language and I speak it back. That'd be pretty cool. So it's the same thing when it comes to your GQ. It's about recognising that and being able to translate it. Now, that is a skill. So the other skill is, well, okay, if I'm a futurist and I don't know, I know myself, but I don't know who I'm speaking with, then how do I, because I can't spot that, I don't have that skill yet, then how do I speak in a much more balanced way so that I'm picking up the other 11 archetypes so there's something in it for everyone. So if I'm speaking to a group of people, I will speak in a balanced way. So how do I do that? Well, I've developed the tools for you to do that, to map out that conversation, to map out that presentation, to map out that email so that you are speaking in this language of everyone that's hooking everybody in, in the right sequence where people go, oh, my goodness, Catherine Matiski, you're speaking to me. No, I'm not. I just have a skill. It's a skill to be learned. And when you learn that skill, what happens after that is amazing because now all of a sudden you're getting more deals on the table, you've got more connection with people, you're way more influential, and it gives you the sense of confidence to say, I can actually make a point and it lands with people and they get it and they can then respond to that and do something with that. Thank you, Catherine. And if we take it a little bit back in terms of uh, meeting a new client, I know this is a big challenge for people who just start in their own consulting practice. They may have two clients that they have that love them and want to continue working with them, but they find it very hard to grow their practice to get new clients. Do you have any advice for them on what works right now for them to get in front of decision makers to be able to start deliberate mm -hmm. value and build those relationships? Mm -hmm. It really comes down to one word and that's visibility. And I think that I have suffered from that in my entire career because I've been within the niche, within the niche, within the niche. You know, we're talking really specifics. It's around how do I get that visibility? And I think one of the biggest shocks for me was when we started, so there's two divisions of the company. There's the ID9 division, which is the mainstay certification, instructional design for subject matter experts division. And then there's this new division, which is GQ. And so nobody knew about it. So I'm now feeling like I'm running a startup. So I'm there with those people that you talked about. I'm right there today. Like, how do we get this out there? We've got this fantastic product. We've got this great idea. It solves all the problems. How do I get it out there? So it comes down to visibility around people just need to know who you are. Well, okay, how do I do that? Well, it's about finding the tribe. Where are the, firstly, who is it? that is your customer. And we've done a huge amount of work with Miro boards. And if you haven't used Miro, you should, and I don't even work for Miro, but you should, because it's brilliant. 
And so using Miro to really map out who is the persona of our customer. And then from there, where do they hang out? Where are they? Are they at conferences? Now, I know conferences are, are coming back, so let's get to there. Are they in groups? Where are the clients? And then meeting them where they are. So remember I said about the Facebook advertising, complete waste of money, because what we did was we thought a particular persona was on Facebook. Well, they're not. We thought they were. There was evidence that they were, but they weren't. And when we spent some money on trying to get to them and trying to build that connection to them, they just weren't there. So we were just burning cash, right? I was just seeing it evaporate before my eyes. So it's about finding the people and then saying, okay, building a connection with them. So for me, my customer persona is all over LinkedIn. And it's a, I think LinkedIn, and I don't work with LinkedIn, I don't have any association with them at all, but I think it is the biggest gold mine that's sitting there and people are walking past it every day and they don't even bend over to pick up the gold. Because I think it's really easy to be really visible on a platform like LinkedIn and it costs nothing. So you can do so much for free. You don't have to pay even for LinkedIn advertising if you don't want to. And you can do so much for free on LinkedIn. And so if your customer persona, your tribe that you're after is wherever they are, meet them where they are. Not only physically, but mentally. So what do I mean by that? One of the things that I've realized with the genius quotient work that I've been doing and in a genius is that I'm operating from a place of subject matter expertise. This has been my whole life working out how to change human behavior. How do I take somebody from here, teach them something, and then they go and do it? Like, that's not easy. And so I've taken 30 years of my life to work that out. And now I know how to do it. And then when I go out with the genius quotient, which has the potential of take the profile for 10 minutes and, you know, invest that 10 minutes and change the rest of your life, I know that. I know the value of that. And so when we first went out, we were talking to people at a much higher level to where they really were mentally ready to take this on so we thought that they were a bit like us that they were also on the bus they were also raring to go they're not they know nothing about this so it's about saying okay oh you actually don't know anything about this because it's a whole new market so you don't know anything about me Catherine Matiski you've never heard of me Ah, because I'm in a whole new tribe now. I'm in a whole new place. I have no standing whatsoever in some of the markets that we're now talking to. They haven't got a clue about me and they don't care about me. They couldn't care about my work. It just I'm just a noise. So how do we then provide value to those people to say, hang on, maybe you are unconsciously incompetent. You don't know what you don't know. And now you're starting to edge into that, well, is there something here for me? Am I a bit consciously 
unconsciously incompetent and now moving to conscious incompetence. Oh, wow, now I know I don't know something. Now I'm thinking, hang on, I've got a gap here. I've got a potential to fill that gap. From that thought, that's where we need to operate, not from the, okay, there's a profile, there's a six-week program, there's digital learning. People don't care about that. They just, it's about meeting them where they are and taking them where they need to go. And that could be a big step or that could be a tiny step. It could be the first step of, okay, that sounds interesting. I might just do that profile. Okay, I'll do that. 10 minutes. She said it was 10 minutes that I have to do. I've got 10 minutes. I can do that. It's those baby steps. So I think where consultants, and I've certainly been the victim of this as well. So here, take my advice. I'm not using it, right? And so if I could go back a step, I'd go, hang on. Don't get ahead of yourself. The the truth here is you're going into a new market nobody knows you and you think people are going to come knocking down your doors well actually they're not and you need to kind of build up and that meet them where they are and take them where they need to go even if it's a baby step then you take that step with them and then eventually you get them on the track and then you take them where you and you can guide them and influence them to where you feel they need to go, which is then in partnership and in step with them. Does that make sense? Yes, makes a lot of sense. And I know our listeners and viewers now thinking, Chris, please ask this. Ask what is that gold mine in LinkedIn? What specifically can we do in LinkedIn to find clients? Oh. You know, the more I go into LinkedIn, now I sound like I'm in in an advertising campaign for LinkedIn, which I'm not, but the more I go into it, the more I realise how you can find your niche and people within that niche and the niche within the niche because, you know, people say, oh, I'm an accountant and I'll go and find small businesses in my area. Okay, which small businesses? What's the pain point of those small businesses? So it's not just geography. It's not just business size. It's not just number of employees. But people in LinkedIn, when when we've all got our profiles and you've certainly got the search criteria, but within everyone's profile, it's what have they been posting? What Or have they or haven't they? What are they sharing? What are they commenting on? What are, what's their profile description say? What When it says, you know, about with the profile, how have they written that? I can read someone's LinkedIn profile. I can tell you their archetype because of the way they've written their profile, unless someone else has written it for them. But I doubt that, you know, because they'd even edit it and make it their way. And so I go, oh, yeah, you're a valedictorian. You're the composer. You're the scribe. I just know it. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, I can just tell you your profile. But that's not the point. The point is that you can, when you actually spend some time, like five minutes, you can glean so much from people. I find it fascinating. And people in LinkedIn, they've done a bachelor in a degree in something. They've done a master's degree in, in the same thing. And then they're doing a job in exactly the polar opposite to what they've studied in. Why is that? Like, don't you think that's curious? They've studied for years and years and years on something and they're not doing it. 
what has happened in that person's life to change their mind. And so you just find out, and I sort of build up this movie of this person and before I meet them and I go, wow. I also have a natural curiosity for people. I think everybody's interesting if you just sort of scrape the surface because people are really bland generally. We see people in a box, you're an accountant, you're a consultant, you're a coach. We just put them in boxes, right? But when you scratch the surface of them, people are amazing. And they give that away on LinkedIn. So as far as finding people goes, that's the tool that I use because it's out there. It's available. I don't have to buy a mailing list. And I've got 14,000 today, about 14,000 connections on LinkedIn. And I make it my business to try and meet with people. I have this game. I have this game. When I connect with somebody, I send them my calendar and say, do you want to have a coffee? And so many people, like I have about eight to 10 meetings a week just having coffee with people. And people go, oh, how have you got time for doing that? I've had the best coffee meetings with people. I learn so much. I find out about them. I just connect with them. And I go, this is one of the, the my missions is to actually have coffee with 14,000 people. How cool is that? And you can just do that. You can just write to anybody on LinkedIn. Now I'm sending like an advertising campaign for LinkedIn, but I think it's cool. It is very cool. Catherine, and what was the result of speaking to so many people over a period of time in terms of uh, contribution to growth of your business? Well, people were curious because they didn't well, they didn't know me. And so they can they would connect with me or I would connect with them for a particular reason. And then it's about finding the common ground. And one of the things that I kind of have in my mind as I'm having these coffee meetings is to find the common ground, either professionally or personally, to find the common ground. And there's not a call that I've ever had where there hasn't been the common ground. And then, and I'm I'm never pushy and salesy. That's not what it's about. It's about just connecting with people. And what I found then is someone, people will say, oh, wow, you've written 30 books. Okay, great. I'll go and have a look on Amazon. Fantastic. Go and buy a book. Or do the profile. Now, because of GQ, they'll say, oh, go and do my profile. And then I see them pop up on our, you know, I go, oh, I've talked to that person. And then they might come back to me and say, hey, Catherine, loved our chat. I've just done my profile. Can you do this for my team? Well, that would have never happened if I hadn't have said that 30-minute coffee call is actually a value to me. And then other people will say, okay, it's been great to meet you. And I say, it's been great to meet you. And I have no intention of ever seeing them again. And someone will say, Catherine, do you know someone in this particular area? I'm looking for this person. I'll go, yeah, I had coffee with that person. Hang on, let me just look them up. Oh yeah, they're here, they can do this. Yeah, they mentioned that in in our coffee meeting and then I'll connect the two of them. How joyous is that? Now they get a connection and they go, Catherine, introduce me to you. So all of that is the kind of great karma that I love to have when operating a business where it's not just about me. Chris, I'm in the Mother Teresa phase of my life where I have had a very successful career 
I have met the most amazing people in the world. I have done the most amazing work with the most amazing companies. I've been very, very privileged. And I and I started with an answering machine that cost me $134. It was my only asset. And many people on this call won't even know what an answering machine is, but that's how old I am. And so now I'm in the Mother Teresa phase of my life where if I've got something on our, on our computer system that someone can use to help them, then here it is. And if I can help them in any way, then I'm happy to do that. That's the phase of my life that I'm in. And so for me, showing up to coffee and saying, is there anything I can help you with? And some people say, yes, I need some help in this. I have a passion for helping startup consultants, startup coaches, because why do I have that? Where I'm happy to have a coffee with people who, and, and if you're listening to this, send me a LinkedIn message and say, hey, Catherine, you want to have a coffee? And I will, because no one helped me. Nobody helped me. My dad, when he was alive, he helped me. And he sort of would say, okay, because he was an entrepreneur and he would say, how about you try this or how about you try that? That was my only help. And I think there's so many people who say, I have no idea where I'm going. I know I've got something here, but I'm just not sure. And if I can help that person to grow their business and, and create a bit of a strategy around that and help them not to fall into the pitfalls that I've fall, fallen into on my roller coaster of 28 years, then that's the phase of, the life, the, the, of my life that I'm in right now. Thank you, Catherine, for being such a kind person. We need more people like that in the world. The last question before we speak about anything you want to share at the end is um, you have incredible work ethic, learning ethic, initiative ethic. I was wondering after building up your company and uh, working so hard and traveling every two weeks between Australia and USA, this is very hard. What were some big realizations or how moments you learned about being efficient and effective with your time? I have a phrase that goes through my mind at least a dozen times a day. And the phrase is, what is the best use of my time right now? So what is the best use of my time right now? So I might be, and, and I said that to myself as I joined our call today. And I joined our call about three minutes before you did. So I was on the Zoom call waiting for you to join, and we were both early because we're efficient <laughs> and we care about that but I was about three minutes earlier than you. And I said in my mind, what's the best use of my time right now? So the best use of my time in that minute was to create a distraction-free environment. And that took me three minutes, turning off my phone, shutting everything down, turning off everything that beeped, and then I looked back at our notes from our last conversation and I thought, right, 
get it. That was the best use of my time right now in those three minutes. And I say that all the time because you can do a lot in one minute as you're waiting for other people to come to a meeting or as you're doing an email or whatever. And sometimes the best use of my time right now is to stop doing the stuff of my day, like just processing all my work, like churning out work. And the best use of my time is to say, to stop doing that, all that can wait, let's get back and look at the strategy. Or stop doing all of that and connect with somebody who's off sick or connect with somebody who I think might need a bit of coaching or help or reach out to a client. Likewise, the best use of my time might be to stop work and go and watch a movie on Netflix. And I have no qualms about that at all because me lying on the couch watching a movie is might be the best use of my time right now because then I just reset and I can watch a trashy movie and love it. And I have no problem in that. And that's the thing that has kept me going, that little phrase. And it's not just what's the best use of my time. It's what's the best use of my time right now. And it's that right now piece that's kept me, and I'm a really efficient person, okay, anyway. If there's any kind of, in Australia we call it faffing around. It's I don't even know how to spell that. I think it's like P-H-A-F-F-I-N-G or something. I don't know. It's just wasting time. There's a whole lot of faffing around. And I don't do that. I try and eliminate faffing around where I'm just, you know, you know, scrolling through my phone and that's faffing around and and whatever and so I try not to do all of that stuff I try to make the most of my time because I know that there's 24 hours in the day 168 days in the week and some people with their 168 hours in the week change the world and some people who faff around and there's two polar opposites and I want to be kind of up the end of the side that people that change the world in their 168 hours, not the people that look back on their life and go, oh, my goodness, I'm 70 years old. What did, where did that time go? I didn't really achieve anything. So I'm not that person. So that phrase, and honestly, Chris, sometimes that phrase drives me mad because I say it so often in my mind, all day, every day. And yesterday, for example, I, I work at crazy o'clock in the morning I because I'm in Australia and and I've never been here so much since COVID has been amazing. COVID was amazing for me. It's like, oh, wow, I've got a home. I've, I don't have to pack a bag. So for me, it was just a whole new lifestyle. But I work at crazy o'clock to work with my American clients because I don't really work in Australia very much, so America and Europe. And so... The best use of my time yesterday morning was I had a, a client cancel a meeting and it was for an hour and a half, right? And I thought, wow, I've just got an hour and a half, like 90 minutes. What's the best use of my time? So it was six o'clock in the morning and I thought, okay, I could go and start my day's work. And I thought, you know what? No, I'm going to go and make some bread. So I went out into the kitchen and I made some bread and my husband came out and said, are you making bread? And he said, 
it's 7.30 in the morning. I went, yeah, isn't that exciting? Now we've got great bread for lunch. And he went, okay. <laughs> but I, for me, I was making that bread because that's been my COVID activity to make bread. I thought, I can make bread. People make bread all the time. They've made bread for centuries. I can make bread. So now I can make bread. And that was the best use of my time because I was making that bread and I was thinking, and it's very therapeutic. And then by the time it came to the end of the bread making and, and I got it out of the oven, I went away and did some stuff and went back. I thought, okay, cool. And that was the best use of my time. And we got bread. So whatever the best use of my time right now is, is the decision I make at that time. I love it. Thank you so much, Catherine. Such a great advice. I, I love it also because it allows you to be present in the situation. So the way you came, we both came early before our meeting, but you came three minutes earlier than me. And you had this time to think about how do I make the most of this time? What is the best use of my time in terms of how do I use this time in the most efficient, effective, enjoyable, fulfilling way? Mm. And uh, I think that's very powerful. And we don't ask ourselves enough this question. And we go through life often on autopilot and waste a lot of time and effort mm. when just by taking few minutes before one hour, one and a half hour activity, we can have much better experience and have much bigger impact just mm -hmm. in those three minutes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the minutes are there. The minutes are there in between meetings. Send someone a LinkedIn message. Okay, done. The minutes are there as things finish early. The minutes are always there. And people who say, I don't have time, that is a construct and a limiting belief. There is so much time to do whatever you want to do in this world. There is so much time. And one of the things I stopped saying was, I don't have time. I've got so I've got 24 hours a day. I have got so much time. It's insane how much time I have. And when people say, have you got time for this? I go, I've always got time. I've got so much time. And people will think I'm nuts because everyone else says the phrase, I don't have time. Of course you've got time. You're just using the time for something else. It, and eliminating the faffing around, well, there gives you tons of time, right? There's tons of time right there. Just eliminate that and then you've got all that time and it doesn't take long to do things. Like people say to me, oh, I, I couldn't do like LinkedIn messaging. Why not? How long does it take you? Oh, it takes about oh, 15 minutes for a message. No, it doesn't. It takes one minute to find someone on LinkedIn and connect with them. One minute is a really long time. Time yourself for a minute. It's a really long time. Get on the treadmill for a minute. Run. That's a really long time for a minute. Okay. A minute is a long time. And so having this construct of life around time, oh, what a waste of time that is. You know, so so it efficiency around time and the value of time and really making sure. And if you are in your own business, time is a, such a precious commodity and you want to be turning that time into productivity into high value effort because that's what gives you the payback so I'm a I, I'm really on a soapbox about 
people of their time. Thank you, Catherine. So much great advice. Really appreciate it. What are some of the things you want to share with our listeners, viewers, where they can go through the profile, anything you would like to share? Well, of course, I'd love everyone to do the GQ profile, the Inner Genius profile. And they can go to the website, which is the thegeniusquotient.com, and they can find out what their genius quotient is. So, of course, I'd love everyone to do the profile. I'd also say to your particular listeners that I mean it when I say I'll show up for a coffee. If you want to send me a LinkedIn message, look me up on LinkedIn and then connect with me and then say, hey, Catherine, do you want to have a coffee? I was listening to this podcast and you mentioned you'd have a coffee and I will show up. So if I can help people in their business to give them some direction, that would give me a great deal of joy. Thank you, Catherine, so much. Such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for being such a generous, wonderful person. We do, as I mentioned, need more people like you in the world. And um, I'm looking forward to our further discussions. And for everyone listening and watching, go check out Catherine's books on Amazon. Go and complete the profile. And I'm looking forward to see you next time. Great. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.